The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And today we're joined by a very special guest. I'm so excited. She is a writer and the evening news editor for Slash Film, and she is the managing editor for Fangoria Magazine. Ariel Fisher, welcome to the pod. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. I am very excited to be here. Yay. Yay. <laughs> So this is a comfort horror episode, and we define comfort horror as the scary movies that bring us joy. And I am so excited to talk about today's movie. Ariel, what movie are we talking about? We will be discussing specifically the 1980 film The Changeling with George C. Scott, not to be confused with, I think it was a Clint Eastwood film with yes, Angelina Jolie. with Angelina Jolie. Yes, <laughs> I was talking to Corey about that, and he was like, oh, yeah, I've seen that one with Angelina Jolie. What happened with that? And it's like, no, not no, that no. one. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> it's the good one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, no, no shots fired to Angelina. <laughs> Watch out, like, Clint Eastwood will shoot you. Back. I know, yeah, <laughs> or like just yell at, at me. At this from... point in his career, he has it coming. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, so before we talk about the Changeling, um, we're going to give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen the Changeling or you accidentally watched the Angelina Jolie Changeling or it's been a while. <laughs> so here's your spoiler alert. It hasn't spoiled anyone in 12 years and technically we're not even supposed to be giving it. The spoiler alert doesn't like people. <laughs> Sorry, I got a little carried away. <laughs> I, I love the evolution of your spoiler alert. I really do. I always they really know just like to happen. <laughs> they like to take the shape of the movie they're spoiling. So yes, yes, I love it. <laughs> All right, strap in. <laughs> it's a snowy day in upstate New York. John Russell, played by George C. Scott, has gotten his station wagon stuck in the snow. While he calls for help, his wife and daughter are killed in a tragic car accident as they wait on the side of the road. Months later, John is moving out of his New York apartment to try and move on with his life. There, he's haunted by memories of his daughter and her red rubber ball. Let's just say toys have come a long way since the late 1970s. <laughs> a classical composer, he moves to Seattle to teach composition at his alma mater. He's looking for a house to rent so he can hunker down and compose. He's in luck because the Historical Society happens to have a house that checks all of his boxes. Gigantic, creepy, technically has a piano, and definitely haunted. Claire, the realtor from the society, tells him it was last occupied 12 years ago. She also keeps looking at him all crazy, whether because she pities him or he has the hots for him or because she's his IRL wife. Hard to say. Just a little fun fact there for you all. Okay. At the symphony, John runs into Claire and also sees Senator Carmichael, a potentially evil old man who's there raising money for the arts or something. I don't know. He just gives big evil vibes. 
What can I say? A Republican <laughs> raising money for the arts. It's just something, seems something is wrong. Something is wrong. Something is wrong there. Definitely yeah. lets you know this is an older movie. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> that night, that night, John wakes up to hear a metallic clamoring reverberate through the halls of the old mansion. The next day, Claire and John go horse riding together. This could be the beginning of a really sweet relationship. But John is still dealing with his grief and is reminded of his daughter. He weeps in bed, but is disturbed by rhythmic banging again, and not the sexy kind. (laughs) So just the phrase rhythmic banging. One of the quietest, most like serious poignant (laughs) movements we're going to cover. It was really hard to make this synopsis funny, okay? (laughs) I just had to pretty sad movie. You did a good job. Thanks. (laughs) <laughs> oh just wait no i don't know there's i don't even remember what little jokes i've been here to be honest okay <clears throat> later that night after a string quartet stops by to practice a really cool piece he hears more strange noises water is turning on and off somewhere in the house he sees a stairwell on an upper floor that leads to a bathroom water is running in the bathtub and he sees a spectral child underneath the water John goes to the Historical Society's rooftop garden to ask, what the fuck is up? Turns out Claire wasn't supposed to rent that house. Another society member tells him it's not fit to live in and it doesn't want people around. Back at the house, someone throws the red rubber ball out of the attic window at John's feet. He goes to investigate, finding a new staircase. It leads to a cobwebby hidden room that looks as though perhaps it once belonged to a child. An old-timey wheelchair lurks in the corner. John finds a little music box and discovers that it plays the same melody he's been composing. It seems someone is trying to communicate with him from beyond the grave. Microfiche time! Everybody's favorite part of every movie. Claire and John visit the library and pull old articles about the area. They, oh, this, this line. They learn that a little girl who lived in the house was killed in a coal cart accident. Cora was her name, and getting killed in a similar fashion to John's daughter was her game. I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, I am just trying to get through the synopsis. This is an accurate recap of events. <laughs> it's very sad. John. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't apologize. That was really funny. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. I have to stop compulsively apologizing. Let's do this. Don't apologize. John wonders if this is why the spirit is trying to reach him. Claire tells him to get the fuck out of the house, but he does not. While looking at pictures of his wife and daughter, the red rubber ball comes bouncing down the stairs. He throws it in the river, only to find it bouncing toward him when he returns. What the hell? (laughs) Next, he does the only sensible thing. He hosts a seance. He picks up a medium from the psychic department of the university, which is definitely a normal thing. (laughs) That part just makes me laugh a lot. At At the seance, the medium says the presence in this house is reaching out to John through his loss. Using automatic writing, she communicates with the spirit. It's a child who can't rest, but it's not Cora. It's a little boy named Joseph who died in this house. He's asking for help, and something is coming down the steps. Then a glass shatters, and the party's over. Later, listening to a recording of the seance, John hears a voice answer the medium's questions in an eerie whisper. Next, we are treated to a very upsetting flashback where a father drowns his young son in the bathtub. The little boy's voice says something about a well. 
we hear the words, Father, Carmichael, my medal, the well. <laughs> John calls Claire for moral support before passing out. She comes over to listen to the tape, which disturbs her immensely. Then, the wheelchair is at the top of the steps. This is definitely a Chekhov's haunted wheelchair situation. <laughs> Senator Carmichael gets a call from the Historical Society lady, warning him that John has been asking a lot of questions. The dead boy was named Joseph Carmichael. It's clear that John is disturbing some long-hidden skeletons in the Carmichael closet. John is putting the puzzle pieces together. Based on the papers he discovered, the vision he saw, and the words from the seance, he deduces that the OG father Carmichael killed his disabled son, then replaced him with an able-bodied orphan, shipping him off to Switzerland so no one would know. He dumped his son's body in a well on some nearby property, his lineage secure in the hands of his replacement son. John goes to talk to the woman whose house is on top of the well. It turns out that after the seance, her daughter Linda saw a small boy trying to come up through the floor of her bedroom. That night, there's another incident as this poor little girl is terrorized by visions of a drowning little boy underneath the floor. Cut to a chainsaw, cutting through the floor. John and the homeowners dig until they find a skeleton hand. John calls the police, who uncover the remains of a child's skeleton. He tells them he doesn't know who it could be. Later that night, he breaks into the house and goes back into the well. He finds a Carmichael christening medal glistening in the grave dirt. Metal in hand, he goes to confront Senator Carmichael as he boards his private plane, but security drags him off. He also just so happens to be wearing an identical medal. John gets home to doors slamming all over the house. Someone is pissed. The next day, a detective shows up, sent by the senator. He intimidates John, suggesting that unless he gives the senator the medal and forgets this whole thing, he'll be forcibly institutionalized. The threats don't amount to much, as immediately after the detective leaves, John has a vision of the detective dead. Claire calls, and we find out the vision was real. The detective died in an inexplicable car wreck shortly after leaving the mansion. John goes to the senator's house and tells him the whole story. His father killed his real son, and the senator was the orphan replacement. A changeling. <laughs> the senator is furious that George is accusing his father of child murder. He begins weeping, but methinks the senator doth protest too much. It's clear he knows he's hearing the truth. Back at the mansion, Claire drops by looking for John. She hears noises, and thinking they're John, follows the sounds to the attic room. And now we get the fulfillment of the Chekhov's wheelchair principle. Said wheelchair takes one look at Claire and goes ham, chasing her down all 50 flights of stairs. Good thing John is there to save the day. It's really, really scary to be chased by a chair. I know. Save her with a vengeance. Yeah. <laughs> John, John gets Claire out of the house, but goes back in, yelling at the spirit in classic George C. Scott fashion. He's the original, come at me, ghost. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Some ghost wind picks up and blows him through the banister to the floor below. The railing spontaneously catches fire from the top down. It's pretty cool, pretty badass. Back in his home. <laughs> Back in his own home, the senator gazes intently at the medal and a portrait of his father. He's hearing Joseph's weird little boy ghost voice and is suddenly at the house, though whether it's really him or his astral form or something, it's hard to say. He walks up the flaming stairway. The chandelier falls and tries to squish George, but now it's Claire's turn to save his ass as she helps him out of the burning house. In the attic room, the senator sees the father the senator sees his father kill Joseph. He dies from the shock as the flames consume the mansion. The next day, we see the smoldering remains of the once great house. The wheelchair is left in the rubble. 
and the music box pops open to play its little song. And that's the changeling. Ooh, <laughs> okay. Very well done. Yes, yes. That I'll was stop great. clapping. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I instigated the clapping. I was oh, yeah. I, I, I'm the terrible culprit of the confusion. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, now let's do a feelings check. And this is when we share our first experiences with The Changeling and how it makes us feel when we watch it. Um, and Ariel, I know that you love this movie and I would love to hear about uh, your first experience with it. Well, I can't remember the exact first time I watched it because I've been watching this movie since I was a little kid. This was like one of the earliest horror movies I ever saw. Mm-hmm. I, I think I must have seen it when I was like, I was younger than 10 for sure. It was probably like eight or nine, maybe. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe even younger. Oh, wow. It's, it's, a, it's a tough timeline to piece together sometimes, <laughs> but I remember I do. I, I was very young. I remember that mm-hmm. much. And it scared the. Cr- what What are your rules on swearing? I realize oh, I have not. Go like for sailors. it. We, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. really bad. We curse. We say so many bad things. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Wonderful. So go for it. <laughs> it. It scared the fucking shit out of me. Like from a very young age, I actually had a very specific nightmare about Chekhov's wheelchair. Um, which, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> that was like the big one that scared the crap out of me. Was um, I the. I think it was the night after I watched it for the first time. I remember waking up from a nightmare that I was in her place and I was being chased down an infinite flight of stairs that oh, just wow. never ended. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. And like again, I'm like eight years old or something, so that was uh-huh. horrifying. Uh huh. Um, oh god. Yeah. And yet, this became one of like my absolute favorite horror movies of all time and Mm. it's just it just became so familiar and I think so synonymous with my earliest experiences with horror specifically Mm -hmm. that it like you know like Jaws which is like my ultimate comfort horror movie which predates my my involvement with the changeling Mm -hmm. the changeling similarly I connect it more to um I guess kind of this the the connection I have of watching it with my parents showing me fun and interesting stuff as a kid mm-hmm. and like all of that lovely kind of nice discovery sensation. So mm-hmm. that's you, that's, that's the majority of why it's comforting for me. It reminds me of the better parts of my childhood, I think. Not because I relate to it from the better mm. parts of my childhood because that would be really <laughs> antithetical since all the kids in this die. Yeah, it's not a good movie for kids. <laughs> no. Are the kids in the movie don't don't fare too well. <laughs> no. Right. It was a bad example. Oh, <laughs> Mike, what about you? Yes, similar to Ariel, like I have no idea the first time when I watched this movie. It feels like it is probably relatively young because it would have been something that was on like in heavy rotation for things like hbo or the movie channel back when there were only like a few cable stations like they would just show this a lot and it obviously it has some of the more iconic imagery of any haunted house movie um with like the ball coming down the stairs and then you know the haunted wheelchair and it's one of those movies that really sticks it's an interesting time in like just movie making like it's an early 80s movie and it was at a point in horror where you would get these movies that were kind of made for adults like you would get horror movies that someone george c scott's age at the time would 
be interested in going to see. And you would get these incredible casts to come in and make these movies. So you have like The Exorcist from like 73. Then you have things like The Omen. Uh, a goat, uh, goat story is a year after this. And I was just thinking oh. of that exact one. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it's incredible where horror in the 80s went because you don't think like as much as we love 80s horror. Um, and if you're not familiar with 80s horror, there's 7 million documentaries about it. So it seems <laughs> like the only era in horror history that people will make documentaries about. <laughs> where it went was like schlocky but fun. Uh, there's a lot of great movies and there's a lot of terrific horror, but it didn't, it became something where it was like, we're making movies for like teenagers now to go to dates to on a Friday night. They're not making this. And I don't know if we've like fully gotten back to making like this kind of horror again. Maybe the closest thing is A24 in IFC Midnight, where they tend to make something that is maybe a little bit more challenging at times. But I think that's still more niche. I think every now and then there's a breakthrough. The closest thing I can think of is maybe Jordan Peele and what he's doing right now with horror. But even then, like there's like a gravitas to some of these movies that's not there. And George C it all comes down to it's George C. Scott. Like mm. this is a, a guy who he was my Ebenezer Scrooge growing up, like his 1984 <laughs> Christmas Carol. Like that was the version of a Christmas Carol mm-hmm. that we watched all the time. And then, you know, he would do just, he was Patton. He was in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, he was the grandfather in Angus, one of the great 90s, like young adolescent teen or teen comedies. Like he's the Kent Anchorous granddad. He's Kinderman in The Exorcist 3. Mm-hmm. He's just this phenomenal presence to him and i think we'll talk about it when we talk about the movie what really works about this movie is how his resolve throughout the movie like usually you watch a haunted house movie and everyone is freaking out and it's kind of going like everything is going off the rails and that's where the terror comes from here you just have this gentleman with a steely resolve to get through it throughout and i think that's what maybe elevates the changeling over maybe some similar fare mm-hmm Laura, what about you? Yeah, so I know I saw this movie for the first time sometime in my, like, probably my mid-20s. I know it was during the period of time where I was going through a huge list of horror movies that I had never seen that were, like, considered great or things. You know, I think I I remember watching this and Burnt Offerings right around the same time, and I was kind of going through that era of, like, ghosty-type movie, and you know this guy, this movie I, I love a haunted house movie like it is very hard for me to to not enjoy some kind of spooky haunted house film um and this is like the i feel like watching it later in life was interesting because as you mentioned there's so many things that are iconic in this movie with the wheelchair the rubber ball that become like almost tropes in in later haunted house films but this movie i think did it did it extremely well and probably did it you know 10 times better than most haunted house films that are being produced these days. I have a lot of thoughts on this era of filmmaking also and the kind of budgets that were put into movies like this and how that helped elevate them. Um but I'll I'll save some of that. I also think what elevates this movie from a lot of um similar haunted house films is that it's kind of got this like murder mystery built into it and it's got a lot of narrative and George C. Scott is guiding you through it. Um, so I think it, it really stays engaging and they take you to a lot of different locations and things that get you out of the like 
it's not just somebody walking around a house slowly, like, which is what a lot of haunted house movies end up becoming. So I think there's, Mm -hmm. there's so much going on here and it's, it just has a real mood and a real vibe to it. It reminds me, I was, I was just trying to remember when I was really young, I saw this movie with Mia Farrow that I think is called the haunting of Julia, which was from 78. Um, and she has a little daughter that dies and it's kind of got, it's in the same vein in my brain of like, just there's nothing that happens in it that by today's standards is like super twisted or like super jump scare frightening, mm-hmm. but it just stays with you. And, um, this this movie is definitely like if it's raining outside and you have a blanket, you want to put this kind of movie on, curl mm-hmm. up, enjoy some really quality craftsmanship, quality in terms of filmmaking, quality performances. Um, it's just excellently crafted, fun to watch, spooky, scary. Love it. Yeah, this I actually watched this for the first time a couple of years ago. It had been off my radar. I'm not it's just kind of one of those ones that missed or that I missed. Um and so it is another movie that Bravo's 101 scariest movie moments kind of spoiled for me in a way, which I mean, I don't hate because I still absolutely love that show and I will try to find it every Halloween and watch it. But yeah, <laughs> I remember seeing the the flashback of the father killing the little boy before I had any kind of context for what this movie was. Um, And I remember when the uh, Angelina Jolie movie came out. And so I think when people would mention this movie, I just kind of thought that's what it was. And I didn't really wasn't aware of it. Um, And so then I watched it a couple of years ago and I there's a lot that I really love about 70s horror, but I don't always enjoy it as horror, you know, because I find lots of times it doesn't really scare me and kind of the pacing is a little slow. So I wasn't really expecting a whole lot going into it. And I was just blown away. Like I loved it and I was not expecting to love it nearly as much as I did. And kind of like what, Laura, you were saying, it's like the pacing is very it's got that 70s pacing atmosphere, but the atmosphere is so creepy and spooky that. I don't mind the kind of contemplative nature of it, you know, and it does like it goes somewhere. It's not just like them as much as I love the Amityville horror for a lot of nostalgic reasons like that movie, like the arc of action in that movie is not the greatest, you know, and this one like it it goes places like it's got a lot of action, like the climax is really, mm-hmm. really exciting. Um, and I was like, man, this movie is awesome. Like I just the banister on fire is so cool. And just for <laughs> that it's so awesome um and i remember seeing that on bravo's 101 movie moments and thinking like this is really cool maybe i should seek this movie out um and then just kind of forgetting about it because the next one came on but yeah i the other thing that i really love about this movie and i'll probably talk about it more is like i was a music major in college so like the fact that there's so much classical music in this and that he's a composer like i just love that it's like the spooky vibe but also like the academic music vibe you know and I mean you don't see many classical composers in movies that often especially not in horror and I just I just loved it I don't have a huge connection with George C. Scott like I know him from as Rainbird from Firestarter which is not the best role in cinematic history but um, but I loved him so this was really kind of my first experience with him being like an actor you know and I was like oh he's awesome I also love like a depiction of a man like 
going through grief and like experiencing feelings like the scene where he's just crying in bed like yeah. again mm -hmm. that's not something that's you see in a lot thing. of movies it yeah. really is like really, i really enjoy it you've definitely watching men cry before. you love right. watching men cry and suffer it's definitely i do especially when well i mean i don't know when i cause it or when i don't but but i mean i just <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that i i enjoy seeing them suffer it's that i enjoy that being normalized yes. because i feel yeah. like if men were more in touch with their emotions Men in general, not specific men. Anyways, um, so this is like Mike. Mike, this is an exactly. My goal is, is to make Mike cry by the end. I have. No are emotions. you are you notoriously not a not a crier? I am not a cry. I'm an emotional person, but I'm not a crier. It no. takes a lot to get me, except for movies. End of Rocky every time. Yeah. Hoosiers. When Gene Hackman says "I love you guys" during his speech for the big game, cry. <laughs> <laughs> Royal Tenenbaums, Gene Hackman again when he's basically Gene Hackman. So Gene Hackman makes me cry. When okay. when Ben Stiller says to Gene Hackman tears. when he says like it's been a really hard year, Dad, and he's like, I know, son. I'm like, waterworks. Aww. Come on, you know, watching that, rewatching that when I'm holding my dog post surgery, like, oh. So yeah, I guess I you know. I'm well, sensitive. I was just going to make us cry. I God know. damn it. You motherfuckers. I'm a sensitive person. Okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's talk about um, these feelings in this movie and what it is that we love so much. And I think maybe we can start with George C. Scott because he's just phenomenal in this role. I think it, he just, like we said, he adds the weight of it, you know? Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing for me with, like I actually fully agree with you on this one that I'm really happy to watch him cry although not <laughs> because I'm happy to watch someone cry so much as I think the the entirety of the movie is really this beautiful kind of exploration of grief and trauma mm -hmm. and the way it sticks to you like glue and like no mm -hmm. matter what you do and what kind of vengeance you have in mind or the anger that you want to lash out at the situation in the end, you're left in the ruins of your own grief. Like mm -hmm. there is, there is nothing else there. Mm -hmm. And the way he does all of that, like even at the beginning when he makes the move and he's kind of just very steely and you don't, you know, he doesn't break, you don't really see grief, but you see people around him kind of like, oh, well, yeah, no, it'll be good for you to get back to work and mm -hmm. it'll be good for you to get back to these things things and doing stuff and distracting yourself and blah 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 and well it's been four months and i'm like are you fucking kidding me it's been four months like I that's know. nothing i was mm -hmm. expecting him to say like two years or something yeah and i mean it was granted at the same time it was a different time we're talking mm -hmm. 1980 it was shot in probably what 78 79 mm -hmm. so you have these especially because it's you know it's a north american movie it's a canadian american co-production so you've got these notions of 1970s 1980s masculinity which have this you know you know, god forbid they show emotion or mm -hmm. express pain or grief or cry or any of these things and he's allowed to go to those places he he uses like the the the, the mystery of joseph kind of becomes this the the perfect vessel through which he can deal with his grief mm -hmm. so it in and of itself it kind of functions as a bit of a distraction but it also allows him to confront his loss mm -hmm. and i think Absolutely. that that's all one of the more nuanced and beautiful things about the movie is that it mm -hmm. actually deals with that and the way he deals with that and his performance is outstanding because mm -hmm. you're normally used to him being like big he does like mm -hmm. a lot you know like i think about the, the examples that mike gave 
And I'm just like, well, but this is different for him. Like it's still big. He still has his big moments, but it's, he never goes full cage. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps it very, it's, it's nuanced George C. Scott, which is rare and mm-hmm. totally. really well executed. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like a lot of haunted house type movies that came in its wake well, well, they'll they'll just stick somebody in there that's grieving, without mm-hmm. really. It'll be like, well, ghosts are dead, so the person that's grieving sees the ghosts. But this, like you just said, this movie actually really thematically explores that, and it is structurally like just the perfect representation of it. I love what you just said about how at the end you're just left in the ruins of your grief. I mean, that is mm-hmm. that last shot is the perfect visual metaphor for that. And so, like this movie really pays off all the things that it sets up. Mm-hmm. in the beginning, which a lot of movies that are um, similar but lesser versions of it, they just don't quite stick the landing. And this is one of those few like movies like in this sort of subgenre of horror where like the ending is really gratifying because I feel like it really it pays off both narratively and symbolically. And it just feels it feels like a complete thought. Mm-hmm. And it's great. It's great. And like, and yeah, I completely agree with everything yeah. you said. I, yeah. I I've had conversations with clients where they've talked about losing a child and the unimaginable sort of grief that they've gone through um, trying to process and and heal from that and one of them has talked about how now when they like go to a few they have peers that have also lost children um, how they make it a point to be available for them and even if it's just showing up and and they talked about saying I just want to go because I want to show this person that, yes, it hurts a lot. Um, there's a lot of pain. It's unimaginable, but it's you're able to get through the other end of it. It's someday mm-hmm. doesn't mean the hurt doesn't completely go away, um, but you're able to kind of manage it and, and function. Mm-hmm. And that's what you kind of see George C. Scott doing in this movie. Like he is able to a semblance, like pick up the pieces of this unimaginable tragedy and as best he can move on. Uh, and part of the way he does that, I like that he has a support network, that he has like the two friends that, you know, basically helped get him into his role at the university, at the conservatory ship. But also his relationship with Claire is like mm-hmm. a really wonderful one in here. There's that moment in the movie where he's very distraught and he calls her. Mm-hmm. And when she comes, he's like, I'm really sorry I called, but I just needed someone that mm-hmm. he's like recognizes like these. There are things I can't do all on my own and I'm going to lean on my support network. Mm-hmm. And what I like about this movie is it's there's not a romance between Claire and and uh, John Russell in this movie. Like I mm-hmm. think if it was made now, there would be. I think like, yeah, it's not know. overt, at least, even if it's yeah. just suggested, but it's right. it's that's fine like mm-hmm. yeah i think it could be seen as the start of a romance maybe it but there's, it doesn't ever cross that line right. into anything romantic but i think yeah. a lesser movie would make it like oh he's able to put his the loss of his wife behind him by hooking up with like claire by the end mm-hmm. of the movie oh and look i totally. found a new one yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. no yeah. you're dead on and what it is yep. like it's it's possible that at some point that you know, a romance would blossom. Um, but what the, what you see here is this deep mutual respect for one another and the deep caring for one another mm-hmm. as well that occurs in this movie. And I think that's something that should be normal. I think, you know, not every relationship has to lead to some sort of romance. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. 
And yeah. like, I love the lens of the, the way the, this movie views him because it's never like he does have this emotional journey. Like he passes out at one point, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. is, again, not something you see many men do. And the movie and none of the characters ever treat that as a weakness for the character. No. And it doesn't like even it explores it, but it doesn't like wallow in his sadness. You know, there's only like one scene where he's crying in bed. It's not like every time something happens, you know. And the moment that I really that almost affects me more than when he's crying is when he when they're riding horses and he just stops and he's just yeah. like, I just miss my daughter. She liked horses, too. And it's one of those moments because I feel like that is a lot of what recovery looks like down the yep. road. You know, it's like you just it's like surprises you all of a sudden and you're like, oh, uh, and then, you know, because I was thinking, oh, this is such a sweet day for them, you know, and then just. Just out of the blue, he has that sad moment. And then I think it's when it cuts to him crying. But it just it's just such a sweet portrayal of it. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's never minimized. It just he feels no. like a real character that is really going through this. And everybody else, like you said, is just really supportive, you know. And that's the biggest thing that even just even going off of kind of what all of you have mentioned is uh, the way that it actually Mike kind of in re- in relation to what you were saying with regards to like parents who have lost children and how they they try to show up for each other and there's that connection in that he's Joseph is connecting with him because he's lost a child so there's the like the the anger and the hurt of being lost connecting mm-hmm. with the pain of having lost mm-hmm. which is interesting in and of itself Mm-hmm. But also, you know, like with what you're mentioning when they when they go horseback riding and he has kind of this moment and like I I've talked about this publicly a few times, but this is the perfect place to to bring it up again, because why not? Mm-hmm. When I was uh, 16, my my first serious boyfriend uh, committed suicide oh, and man. going to his uh, funeral and seeing his parents like his his mom said to me at the um at the visitation a couple of days before the funeral thank you for keeping him alive longer and mm. it was intended as this really lovely like and, and it's like there's a lot more to the story that we just don't have the time to go into <laughs> but like she's not she's not wrong but it's That's that a heavy you know it's a heavy burden to put on a 16 year old mm-hmm. um but it's also a mother who is grieving who is looking for some kind of recognition that that is a perfectly valid thing to feel mm-hmm. and be grateful for mm-hmm. and that not being a, and not having the place to say that to the right person, mm-hmm. you know, having that relatability of grief, that relatability of loss mm-hmm. and trauma. Cause things like that, things like what George C. Scott has gone through, all of that is trauma. That is, mm-hmm. that is unmitigated trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's so different to having like it, it hurts to lose a loved one no matter what there is if you plan on it for months and they're in palliative care or it happens in the blink of an eye because of an aneurysm or you're a suicide survivor and they took their own life it you know it's no matter what it's traumatic but when it's that kind of a sudden ripping away mm-hmm. there is nothing that can make that better there is mm-hmm. nothing that can bring catharsis like ever it gets, mm-hmm. it's like you were saying, Mike, like it gets easier, but it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. It's always there underneath the surface, just waiting to catch you in the undertow, you know, and like, that's what exactly. you have to accept. You have to accept about it. It's like, I'm just, this is something I live with. 
now, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, there's ways to manage it and ways to, you know, seek help. Because an- another thing about that kind of trauma is it leaves you feeling really adrift and isolated. You know, it's like yep. the, the nature of it is, is like you said, it's like a ripping. And so when and you're, you're lost drifting out to sea, you know, not to continue with this water <laughs> metaphor. No, it works. Doing, it's perfect. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, and so it's like, you, you know, you need people to, to, <laughs> cast the net bring you back reel you back in you know and so that's you know, in in this movie it did strike me as a lot of movies I've seen in this genre you know they show the isolation they don't show the person getting reeled back in as much as as he is able to be with the people around him and it's it's just handled really with a really light touch mm-hmm. um it, it doesn't ever you know overtake the actual narrative side of it but I think if anyone who has experienced that kind of grief or loss like you really recognize it in this movie and and how how authentic it feels Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel contrived it feels very believable which isn't one of the one of the many things that help elevate it I think yeah yeah absolutely I'm thinking a little bit about we just did a fan commentary for the patrons on like Fear Street 78 Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking of Halloween 2018 where you get this depiction of trauma of you have these two persons that are now making a choice to completely isolate themselves from the world. Like you have the character of Ziggy who's behind 10 deadbolts and Mm -hmm. has like a very regimented schedule and there's like a million clocks and it's like they've made a choice now to completely withdraw. Mm -hmm. You see like Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie 40 years on, like basically lives in the forest, forest or fortress of solitude and all mm-hmm. it's cost them. And I'd argue that like, while examples like that exist in the world, that what you see in something like the changeling is a much more accurate rep- representation of how persons deal with trauma. Mm-hmm. They pick up the pieces as best they can and they try their best to have some sort of functioning day-to-day existence. And there's moments where what this movie does really well is where grief hits him. Jen, you mentioned the horse riding scene. There's the moment where the little girl just comes running in from playing with her brother. Mm -hmm. There's like the moment when he's packing up from New York and he sees the red ball. And it's it's not these giant moments in life. There are these little things that kind of, catch you and take your breath away and you need to mm-hmm. kind of gather yourself to move forward in that mm-hmm. moment and kind of get past that moment i know like the way i've been trained for dealing with persons with trauma is you ask them like do you want to deal with the trauma first or do you just need to know how to get through your day mm-hmm. what do yeah. we need to work on and you go with the person at that moment so i, yeah. I appreciate this movie does that it, it allows us to see competence and allows us to see someone who is moving forward without trying to leave what happened to them behind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think because it's, it's so the themes of this movie are so sad and it's so much about trauma. And the one that I think struck me more when I was watching it this time is just like the, like Joseph, like how unfair that trauma is for him. And like this little boy who not only had to like spend his life being made to feel like he was worthless and like had to be hidden away, but then like betrayed by his parent, you know, and his Mm -hmm. life like stolen and, and that it was covered up and there's no one to mourn for him, you know, and Mm -hmm. how like unfair and heartbreaking that is, you know, and I have a son who is that age. And so it was like, Oh, and so it's like he finds this person that 
that will mourn, you know, that understands and like, oh, maybe this person can mourn. And it's it's like that that rage and that frustration and that pain and like it comes out in the house and it's just that's the thing I think is really interesting about haunted house stories a lot of times is it's like this manifestation of pain that has nowhere else to go and so it just comes out in like something like the banister being set on fire like that is really cool because it looks cool but it's also cool because it's like rage it's like combustible Mm -hmm. rage that has nowhere else to go and so it just like explodes and it's also the rage of a child. Like mm-hmm. that's the other thing is that you have you you you're watching the the rage and grief of a grown man who has to continue to move through the world and be a functioning human being and get on with his life because at the end of the day life continues as as bitter as that is it, it is as bitter as that truth is it is a truth nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at Joseph you have this you have this hurt angry child mm-hmm. who has the co- the coping skills of a child juxtaposed with a parent and mm-hmm. you see that kind of that ebb and flow of like the raw emotion that would just be lovely to to express because it's palpable and it's all you're feeling mm-hmm. but it's it's impossible because again it comes back to that you know like you're left in the rubble of your own life if you do that mm-hmm. and that's what happens that's what happens with Joseph. And mm-hmm. that's, it's so absolutely tragic. Like all of it is completely devastating. The older I get, the more I think about the movie and I'm like, wow, this is <laughs> yeah. depressing. It, <laughs> it, it yeah. rips your heart out. I mean, you know, and I think at the beginning of the film when George C. Scott gets to Seattle and he's talking to his friends and he's he's sort of saying like, he says something like for months, you know, or for weeks, or I functioned automatically, I didn't feel anything. And then one day it hit me like, mm-hmm. you know, they're gone, they're gone. And I just kept saying it. And the thought that I had this time while while hearing him at that point in the movie, I was like, well, grief doesn't let you get away with that forever. You mm-hmm. know, um, at some point, it's going to come out. And it's and I so I think that like, again, the it was like a key in a lock the the forgotten boy who is murdered and ripped away like he he needed he needed to be able to have his story told and the john character needed some catalyst to start the processing for him and he needed you know he moved away from new york ostensibly to get away from those memories of the family mm-hmm. you know the, the you know all the memories of the life he shared with his family in that apartment but he couldn't really get away from them. And it, and it was really so. So in some ways it is. Tra- I mean, it isn't in, in many ways and in most ways it's incredibly tragic. In some ways, I st- I do see it as like a little bit healing mm-hmm. um, or it's like a catharsis that needed to happen, yeah. you know, um, because the, the whole thing with the senator fi- at the end of his life being confronted with the truth, you know, and it was unclear. There was a little unclear to me if he like how old he was when the switcheroo happened and if he Mm -hmm. really if he if he remembered it or if he had just kind of repressed it completely because he he also came from this traumatic early life experience being an orphan and then got swapped in you know Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just kind of that idea and that even that theme it's like the things that you bury and push down will come to light one way or the other so it's just about how we deal with it and this movie you've got George C. Scott dealing with it in the one way you've got the ghost of the child and then you have the senator who just completely was like see see no evil hear no evil toward the whole thing Mm -hmm. and it just all comes out explosively by the end yeah Um, 
And that's why I love how you said the rubble, because it's not just the rubble of his grief, but it's like the rubble of this lie and this Mm -hmm. horrible betrayal. And it's like, this doesn't deserve to stand anymore. And this doesn't, this can't continue, you know? And I think when we think about a Senator Evil, I call him just because (laughs) (laughs) he's kind of depicted as that. But I mean, you know, if you are a a six year old, you know, and somebody took you out of an orphanage and said, hey, here's this wealth and this, you know, and he did it's it's I don't know. He is a grown up. He's an old man when we meet him. So it's hard to kind of look at it through the eyes of a child. Like, I'm not sure what we would expect him to do, you know. But that in and of itself becomes kind of an interesting lens to look at the movie through because we that happens so often in ways that we often kind of, I don't want to say dismiss, dismiss is the mm-hmm. wrong term, but but kind of excuse with like, oh, they're older, they're from a different time, they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. well, you know, they're at this age, so they should just be over their trauma or they should just be over their grief or whatever. And that's not that's not the way it works. And it kind of, in a lot of ways, points out a glaring flaw in the way people used to deal with grief and trauma Mm -hmm. and recovery in that it was kind of this need to move past, need to get over it, just tamp it down and keep going and it'll be fine. And Mm -hmm. it's like what you said before, it's not that it it will come to light. That's not how it works. Trauma does not like to stay buried. Mm -hmm. If you try, it's just going to rear its ugly head either through abusive and manipulative behavior or self-sabotage or mental illness or whatever like there are a million different ways that it can come through and Mm -hmm. i think what we see in him is in in senator evil uh (laughs) senator evil carmichael i say with air quotes because uh, you know visual medium no (laughs) but i see that on his his campaign posters and things now exactly yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) but he you know we see him and like you said he comes from this traumatic upbringing he was an orphan that in and of itself is traumatic being swapped in there are these feelings whether he was aware of being swapped in or not and it was just here this is going to be your name now okay we're your parents Mm -hmm. now okay and like that's it like there's like never talk about it we we don't talk about these things we don't ask about these things so then now as an adult he's being forced to grapple with decades and generations of trauma that predate him Mm -hmm. that are now his sole responsibility because there is no one else and the Mm -hmm. weight of that is unbearable because no one should have to carry that weight Mm -hmm. and generational trauma does that like that's that's what that is Mm -hmm. exactly and i i was struck at i don't know why you know in previous watches of this film it never struck me so much like just how sad his situation was, even though he's this old kind of slimy politician, you know, by the time we meet him, the moment when he's finally talking to George C. Scott toward the end of the film and he starts crying, thinking about like, I mean, like that felt very earnest to me. That was a really good performance of like, this guy was finally having a meltdown. Like that, those tears to me told, told you, you know, he knows, he knows this is Mm -hmm. what happened. And he's, now for the first time in his life actually feeling the emotions of that and like actually confronting it and it's mm-hmm. really sad because like he didn't ask for this either you know he was yeah. just kind of swept up in the bullshit of what this horrible man did yeah. um you know and yeah exactly well yeah i mean think of the when we're asked to just visualize or picture something a lot of times it's hard to have for some people like empathy for that so mm-hmm. you imagine this 
person who was six years old when he was taken from an orphanage, which is horrible enough to have to be in an orphanage. And then you're given to a family of tremendous wealth and privilege. You're immediately shuttled overseas and you spend a dozen years in Europe. And then you come home and basically as a young adult, meet your family for the first time Mm -hmm. because he spends 12 years in Switzerland or wherever it is that they Mm -hmm. say. As far as I read this movie, like he may know that, oh, there was like we had a son and he died and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. like that's about as much as he knows. And he's maybe told some things where you're like, we can't really talk about him. It's really important that we don't or all of the things that we have could go away if that's the case. And, you know, you might be able to make a very easy intellectual argument like, OK, I don't talk about being adopted and I go spend a dozen years in a beautiful part of the world and I get all of this. That's great because mm-hmm. um, you're not forced to confront it. But then yeah. the f- when he's finally at age 80, he sees what happened to his adopted brother. It overwhelms him. Like he can't process it. Like he just, mm-hmm. it overwhelms him and it, it mm-hmm. kills him. Yeah. I can't help but draw a parallel to what we're going through today. Where you have so many people that are like, I won't get a vaccine or I won't wear a mask because it won't affect me. And then it's not until, you know, I I mean, you get overwhelmed and and I have like zero, I just, my empathy card has run out like the, (laughs) I didn't get the vaccine and then now I'm on an intubator. Like, oh, you know, how dare you have to be forced to live with the consequences of your decisions mm-hmm. like it's not until something affects them personally and they see it in an up close then they become like an advocate for it mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of too bad yeah it's pretty yeah. shitty yeah and, and I, it's yeah and it's because i all the other parallel that i kind of see is like you know a person who came over to America as a child and took indigenous land because they lived in the home that their parents did. Like they didn't make the choice to do that, but that doesn't mean it was okay. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we're, we're, it's like, it wasn't his. So sorry, I'm hoping I can make this connection. It's like, yes, he, he was a part of something bigger than him. And mm-hmm. he was a part of some, he was a part of taking something that did not belong to him. And we are, we can have empathy for him because yes, this would be a huge shock for him to realize how much evil he was a part of and how this terrible thing that he really benefited from. And that's kind of what we're asking a lot of people to do right now to reckon, recognize the system that they are a part of that takes yeah. things from other people. And I think like, I, I, have to have empathy I think sometimes that that is a really hard thing to reckon with but Mm -hmm. it also is possible to do and in order to move forward we have to so if I think about what I would want Senator Evil to do it's (laughs) to say and I mean I guess if he were 40 years younger it would be a lot easier to say okay Mm -hmm. well this this wealth that I've built like I can give this back or maybe I can give it to the orphanage. I can do stuff with it. Exactly yeah yeah Yeah. and I think it's Mm -hmm. just he is at the end of his life and it's just it's too much and I mean, I can understand having that reaction also. I mean, you, you know? get hints of it. You get hints that he's like they said, he's served for 36 years. Mm-hmm. And like the, the introduction to him is him like making a donation to yeah. like a conservatory. And that I think it's mentioned he's like a champion of the arts, which, again, mm-hmm. yeah, it is not yeah. something you see out of a Republican senator right. very often. 
based yeah. on our contemporary understandings. Based on <laughs> yes, yeah. based on everything since Maplethorpe, like now the sudden like that doesn't happen <laughs> yeah. any longer. I, I think I keep thinking of him as Senator Evil because he reminds me of Mr. Burns when he, he has totally, that yeah, he jacket, totally gives me you know? Mr. Burns vibes. He mm. just Excellent. he has that pinched kind of yeah. like angry face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's yeah. you could see that he's trying to and I don't think he understands like where his wealth came from, if that makes sense. I don't think he got the scope of like what it took for him to kind of inherit that enormous sum of wealth. And mm-hmm. you get the idea that he's trying to uh, like, it's not Martin Sheen in the dead zone, which is this just oh, yeah. ruthless mm-hmm. evil politician. It's just mm-hmm. another cog in a wheel type of politician, yeah. you know, your everyday yeah. garden variety of badness. Right. Again, a lesser movie would have made him much more like mm-hmm. stereotypically evil and mm-hmm. you know, but again, mm-hmm. all of this is handled very yeah. authentically, I feel mm-hmm. like. He he yeah. is quick to whip out like you get the feeling that he has had to write checks to people before as part of Black because he has that like giant checkbook out really yeah. quick <laughs> and he's like what's gonna, what is it going to take? Yeah, so, it's like you mentioned that he like like he knew where the wealth came from right. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he didn't seem to, he never questioned it though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, he knew it came from somewhere, but he never asked the questions of where it came from mm-hmm. or why it came or what he should do with it. Like he just accepted that it was his. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was like that sense of like personal accountability or responsibility also goes, I think, with that allegory that Jen was mentioning as well, which I very, like, I understand. This- yeah, the idea of like manifest destiny, like I have this because yeah. it's mine. That like right. I am somehow like beholden. I also wonder in in his specific circumstance where he was an orphan by age six, like all of a sudden you have this. You're like, would you be more prone to hold on to it tooth and nail at that point? I got to imagine being an orphan at the turn of the 20th century in particular, before mm-hmm. there were things like unions and child labor laws would be a particularly unpleasant experience. And if you have anything, how much more you're likely, and we're reading into it in a way that I don't think the script meant to, but we're kind of bringing our own like sociological and political underpinnings into it, but that's part of the fun. That's the fun part. Yeah. 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 If there's a prequel to the changeling, it's Senator (laughs) Carmichael working a chain gang and just eating like it's straight out of Oliver Twist. Oliver, yeah. He's got he's got soft hands. He's got money yes. counting hands. He he's does. Love it. <laughs> <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, and what's funny is because he is a politician, so he has the the power to set precedent or make laws to like mm-hmm. protect orphans, you know. And I get you know, again, we don't really see enough, I think, of his career, you mm-hmm. know. I think he is pretty quick to sick that detective on him and threaten him to go to the institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because this was um I'm using air quotes, based on a true story. So the writer, and I'm going to link some articles, one, the article talking about the true story, and then the article debunking the true story, because the writer, and I can't remember who wrote it, but he was talking about this ghost story um, where he rented this house in Denver. And as you read this article, it is basically the plot of this movie. It's like, oh, okay, so you're saying all of this really happened to you, basically. Um, It's it's pretty debunkable, I think. Like lots of things, like the house wasn't built at the turn of the century when he's claiming this kid, you know. Um, oh, okay. But what's interesting is in th- in his version of the story, the little boy 
Joseph was sick and just happened to die. He wasn't murdered. And it was a family, like he was the only child of this family. And so if they did not have anyone to pass the wealth onto, it would have gone to the other like branch of the family. So it was Um. slightly less like ominous, malevolent, you know, and I really enjoy like for the sake of a movie, I enjoy adding in that motivation because it just like, it brings up so many of these complicated things that we can talk about. And it's, it's terrifying and horrifying. And I feel like that's really like the spark of grief because it's not just a traumatic thing that happens. It's a betrayal and it is a, you know, a terrible thing that was done to someone, to a child. So. Yeah, I think that's what makes it cohesive in a narrative sense. Like, I think it wouldn't be nearly as powerful if they, you know, even the horrible scene aside, you know, with the drowning. Like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's what gives a ghost story or a haunting its backbone. It's the same mm-hmm. way that like George Romero changed the way we think about zombie movies and gave it the backbone of human interaction, which arguably is something that it always already had with voodoo horror. But that's a tangent I won't go down because I will <laughs> not stop. Um <laughs> But it's, you know, the the misconception about hauntings and, you know, ghost stories and things like that is that it's is that the focus is on what the ghosts do and the crazy shit that happens. Mm -hmm. Just like the misconception about zombie movies and what makes them so impactful is about watching people get eaten and like Mm -hmm. getting to blow up zombies. And that's Mm -hmm. not that that's not it. it. Like with so much else about horror, the most impactful part of both of these subgenres is you're dealing with a ghost story someone has died mm-hmm. there is loss there is grief there is human connection mm-hmm. so fuel that human connection you need the reality of of human beings and human life in order to motivate any kind of audience interaction and participation you to take mm-hmm. that leap of faith you have to you have to give a shit and right mm-hmm. the, so that human element is what makes us give a shit Mm-hmm. Yeah, that book that I just read, Ghostland, um, which is about a haunting, an American history through haunted houses, I think, which is fantastic. It deals with a lot of those themes. It's like haunting and ghosts are like how we reckon with our history and how we process a lot of the unprocessable tragedy and things that we do to each other and it's like when someone's life is over they have no more action they cannot get they they can't get justice for what happened to them so it's like what they leave behind becomes the story and the lens through which we care about them kind of like what you were saying like this is what is left behind and I think sometimes is one of the things I think is fantastic about this book is it talks about two different kinds of haunting and I'm going to mess up the words, but read this book because it's really great. But it's like the haunting where the the family members of the ghost are still alive. Like it's a recent passing, like the memory is still really present. And then there's the haunting or the ghost that died like hundreds of years ago. So it's like the legacy of the story. And it's like the way that evolves over time is like the way that we understand it like the the things that have happened to us and the things that we've done and that we've been through and sometimes it's just it's just too close to process at that moment but like this child joseph like it it, because it's interesting this is to for something that happened to a child like this is a movie with a lot of older actors you know and so like this it's not a present story anymore and the only one that could pay for this is the person who was also a child when it happened, you know? And so it's just this interesting, like, processing of these things that we really can't do anything about anymore. Like, the window for justice is gone, you know? That 
that speaks to Ariel's point earlier about Joseph and watching a child's rage and mm-hmm. a child's anger like it's a tantrum. Like rewatching this movie, I was trying to figure out. I'm like, what is it that Joe's like? You know, George C. Like Russell at one point just starts yelling, "What do you want?" Like I've done everything yeah. you wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, which as a parent, I can tell you that. Oh my god, the amount of times you have to say that. <laughs> yeah, um, I've been there. <laughs> you know, because Joseph is angry and slamming yeah, doors, that's, and that's the thing. It's like I don't think joseph knows what he wants at the end of the day yeah. joseph doesn't know either yeah um because exactly. he can't he's too his spirit is still too young to process mm-hmm. like what happened to him yeah he's he's, he's, he's hurt he's in pain yeah. Yeah. it's you know it, it, and like the sound that you keep hearing in the house is that bang 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 mm-hmm. and it's his little fist against the side of the bathtub which mm-hmm. i think speaks mm. so much and i mean it, you know it, it's it's this moment of pain just captured and trapped forever in this place mm-hmm. and i think of you know as also a nerd who reads a lot about hauntings and <laughs> like paranormal crap like you know there's the idea of like the residual haunting where some moment is playing over and over again mm-hmm. and in this one i think it, it's also an intelligent haunting but what is most interesting to me is the replaying of that sound and that moment, because it really is. It's like something that's that bad just leaves a scar Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in like the fabric of time and um, not to be too dramatic, but it, you know, it does. And, and I think, and just another little side note, interesting thing, again, whether or not you actually believe in this in the literal sense, I'm not even sure if I do, but like, I just find really interesting is that during periods of heightened societal unrest, paranormal sightings increase, um, Hmm. ghost sightings, alien sightings, all these kind of things. Like they were saying that even during the pandemic, like um, UFO sightings, you know, the reports of those like went up, like there was like some notable percentage more in 2020 than in 2019. And you could say, well, it's all because we're all trapped at home or whatever. But this does, you know, uh, if you just look back through t- periods of where they call them like paranormal flaps, whether that's and and I and if you talk to me, I think there's something interconnected about all these phenomena. I'm mm-hmm. um, just on an, uh, again, I'm starting to sound like tinfoil hat, but like on an, <laughs> no. on, an, on an energetic level, like these things are all. I really think there is something to, and I think it's exactly what you said. It's like we're trying to reckon with our past. We're trying to reckon with what's happening around us all these extreme heightened emotions have to find a place to go mm-hmm. and like they will come out. So I just, I just think it's really interesting. That's where yeah. I trail off. That's where the <laughs> thought ends. So. Well, might we maybe shift a little bit to talk about the seance and the haunting aspect of this, because that sure. is something that I think is so cool and fascinating. I love the seance. Like we've seen a lot of seances and a lot of movies, and this might be my favorite. Like I love the automatic writing part. It's so cool. And I look at it and I'm like, what, what is going on? I also kind of get a little bit of an ASMR thing when I see people yeah. writing on paper. So I'm like, yes, it's so cool, but it's just it, but it's not overdone you know it doesn't ever cross over to cheesy or hokey you know and I also love how the medium goes up to the stairwell and she looks up and she's like nope and nope. then she turns right back mm-hmm. around it's just so fantastic and it's the creepiness of this movie I feel like is it's just the perfect amount you oh, know it's the restraint of this movie mm-hmm. is what mm-hmm. it really is it doesn't have like those you mentioned the Amityville horror like there are no like priests getting covered in flies or <laughs> 
you know, like red, you know, red eyes glowing, like none of the mm-hmm. obvious signs of like a typical no. haunting. Like it's a movie that allows just these very small moments to build and to add up. And it shows like a tremendous amount of restraint to do that and trust the audience will fill in the blanks at that mm-hmm. point. That was one of the biggest reasons why I had a hard time loving this movie as a kid, actually, it was because it scared mm-hmm. the crap out of me. And I like I, I loved it off the hop. It was one of my favorites mm-hmm. uh, just out of the gate. And I remember having I think it was my 12th or 13th birthday party. And I invited a bunch of I was never popular. So the fact that anybody showed up was like this whole big to do. And it was like, oh, OK, <laughs> I have to show them real good mm-hmm. stuff. They have to like be happy. Otherwise, they're never going to talk to me again. Oh, and oh so God. I, I saw so relatable. I think, <laughs> yeah. So I was like, OK, we'll watch. We'll watch. Yeah, I must have been like 13 or so because it was after I had seen The Exorcist for the first time. And I was like, cool, we'll watch The Exorcist and then we'll watch The Changeling. That's a great double <laughs> bill. And everybody laughed at both of them. And they were like, these are so boring. Oh, my God, these are so stupid. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what's wrong oh. with me? I'm so scared. <laughs> like, I didn't mm-hmm. understand. I but they were just the lame. Too. Yeah. True. This is true. And I know this now. You are correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, they're just, they are. They're understated. Like, yep. the changeling is this soft, slow burn. And it relies on its it kind of becomes, it's like what I was saying about I, I've, I, what I have said about um, like Get Out, for example, and how horror can kind of be this really interesting empathy litmus test. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, just because something isn't scary to you doesn't mean it's not scary to somebody else. But also if we consider the fact or the, the idea that movies function as empathy machines, then the way we interact with a movie also uh, depends on our ability to empathize with other people in general. Mm-hmm. So like, I watch these kinds of movies and I watch The Changeling and I immediately connect with it because all I'm doing is empathizing 100% of the time. And they're such empathizable, like they're such, they're easy to empathize with and to mm-hmm. sympathize with and to try and want to understand. And mm-hmm. m- most people don't want that out of a horror movie because most people don't recognize that that is what horror can do is really emphasize and hammer home the mm-hmm. notion of human connection and empathy. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. God, I'm just like, like yeah i'm just like hype manning everything you just said i really think that is like the people undervalue horror and it has it's like such a trojan horse for getting across like really powerful concepts from like big social ones to like intensely personal things and it's just movies from this era if there if there's moments of quiet they they say things like oh this is stupid or they laugh because they're deflecting they, they they can I think they feel maybe some of some of the time getting their their heartstrings getting tugged on and it's just so much easier to like roll your eyes at it or or laugh or make a joke of it um, mm-hmm. you know rather than actually uh, earnestly engaging with the content yeah, yeah. or you, or even just getting that instant gratification because that's yeah. so much of what's also associated with horror is that kind of that that adrenaline rush you get that that right. pump mm-hmm. and the forgetting that real real terror doesn't necessarily stem from a you know a rush of blood to the head so to speak it doesn't it doesn't stem from that that immediate totally. like shock to the system yeah sometimes it is the slow burn sometimes it's becoming an adult and looking back on a movie like the changeling and going oh my god this is about a murdered child and i'm at the age where i could conceivably have children holy shit this is horrifying right. like you know sometimes it's about putting yourself in a different vantage point mm-hmm. and whether or not you're able and willing to sit with or acknowledge even those emotions. Like, I think you're onto something by saying like, I, they, they might start feeling something, 
mm-hmm. and that's like off-putting. And I think to the same extent, there's this kind of re- resistance to acknowledge that there is something else beyond a, the the impact of a well-executed jump scare or something. Right. Like that, that, oh, I signed up to watch a scary movie. I don't want to feel shit. Right. Yeah, totally. like you're missing so much. <laughs> like that, yeah. As a, a person who has described myself as an empath before, and like really, imp- like it's it can be really overwhelming sometimes. And like oh, I, yeah. yeah. And so I think that's partly why I love horror movies. It's because I just the way I operate the world, I'm constantly empathizing with the people around me. And sometimes it was like for safety, and that's why I think I developed it so well. And sometimes it's just because that's what I'm used to doing. And so when I come watch a movie, it's like I'm empathizing with these. Re- Real, these people that aren't real they don't actually affect my life but I'm still like getting that because you're empathizing with the tragedy but you're also empathizing with the empowerment and you're empathizing with the catharsis and that's that's what I get out of it but I also have like put like it took me three tries to watch the Babadook all the way through because I was like oh, I, yeah. I just can't do this right now this is a fa- it's one of my favorites now but it's like I it's really hard to empathize and to really take yourself to some of the themes especially in a movie like this and I think that what is great about this is that it's not so heavy-handed that you are just like sobbing throughout because it is a really tragic story, but there's enough there. There's enough balance that you can just watch it and just be scared, you know, or just it lets you breathe. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (sighs) And it also has microfiche, which I am not kidding is one of my favorite things in horror. (laughs) I get so excited whenever, I don't know what it is about that, but I just like libraries are fun. And like anytime somebody breaks out microfiche, I just get really excited. (laughs) Cause nobody uses it anymore. So now it's like, oh, nostalgia. I know. (laughs) I'm hoping that like the, the trend of like eighties horror or like nineties, I guess now do people still use microfiche in the nineties? Like I'm hoping it'll still be a thing. Yeah. I'd say you could go through like mid- silence of the lambs says mid- there's 90s. a very significant uh which is 94 right that was my yeah. association with it when with i was Michael a little Beach. girl and i was just like oh i can't wait to be an adult yeah. like <laughs> yeah woman using microfiche in a library this seems like the thing to do and, like- <laughs> and then the future betrayed us and we don't oh, yeah. use microfiche every day <laughs> It's like the same, it's the same experience I've had with dark rooms in the past. Cause when I was in high school, I did photography and we still had a dark room. So -hmm. like I had to learn how to like load my film in a black bag and like in pitch black without being able to see anything in order to develop it and like doing my own printing and burning and dodging and all of this stuff. The romance of it was so wonderful. Also, Mm because my dad did it as a teenager and was like, this is great. You'll have so much fun when you get to do it. And Mm -hmm. then when I was going away to university and I wanted to do photography, everybody was like, oh yeah, no, we're getting rid of our dark rooms. Oh yeah. No. <laughs> no one has them anymore. Photography oh. and microfiche. Bring us bring back the dark rooms, damn it. Right? Yeah. I, I want a dark room. I want a quiet library. I want <laughs> gears. I want chemicals. I want to feel stuff. Right. We'll just have Morgan Freeman set the metronome for us. <laughs> There's no real to real tape recorders anymore. Mm-hmm. There's no, no landlines. No. Ugh, no. Although disgusting. I I don't miss landlines. Although I, I don't have miss some landlines nostalgic either. memories for them. But <laughs> I was just watching The Matrix the other day and I was like, wow, we don't have landlines anymore. <laughs> That's okay. I miss not being able to be reached. Oh. Yeah. I thought I you were going to say yeah. to be able to slam the phone down. Because no. oh. no, that's, 
because we all know we pretty much like carry our phones around with us 24 hours Mm -hmm. a day so when someone doesn't answer you're like you're you're looking right now and you're making a conscious decision not to answer Mm -hmm. (laughs) text right now i know yeah yes yeah. Um, unless you're me and you just never notice it going off and you <laughs> right. do miss everything. I've turned most of my notifications off because it just, it, you know, I check in in regular times and it's, I get texts and stuff. But yeah. No, but yeah. I do miss that period of time where like I can just disappear for a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm working on not freaking out that I'm missing everything while mm-hmm. I'm disappearing, you know, but that, that's my problem with it. Uh, it's I don't like, know. Who's trying to get in touch? What am I missing? Yeah. What's interesting, because like this summer, I made it like we went away a few times and I made a conscious choice to try as best I can to unplug. And I found myself not missing checking in every 30 seconds. I'm like, it is just nice to kind of be like drifting away right now or getting caught up in a, like a physical hard back book as opposed mm-hmm. to like something that's oh, yeah. on my phone that I can just scroll up and then check out what else is going on. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. But I'm also old. Not so. Well, no, I mean, there's a ton of stuff. I think we talked about it on a recent, in the Assassination Nation episode, there's plenty of studies that show like how much your life satisfaction goes down when you have access to social media. It's Mm -hmm. like, it is just not not good for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no. It's the, the, the getting away from it is hard, you know, because it's got like an addictive quality to it. Um, But once you have broken the chain and are able to walk away from it for a little while, um, it is a wonderful feeling, in my opinion. But then, of course, I, I, I always come back. I come crawling back. I've never successfully like gotten away from all of it for any length of time. (laughs) So that's my problem. Um, Well, is there anything else we want to talk about in the the changeling? The house. The house. Okay, where the garage is is like 90 feet from the door and you have Mm -hmm. to like physically close it. I'm like, this this doesn't seem like the garages of today. It's it's a carriage house. I know. It's so cool. (laughs) Like you're still getting wet. (laughs) It's a lot of house for one man. Mm -hmm. You got to factor in trying to clean that house. And the uptake on it, like I mm. live in a relatively small house. And when my family was overseas, it's mine to take care of every day. And I'm like, that in and of itself is hard to do. Never mind a 4,000 square foot behemoth of a home. Mm. That's why he has a staff. Right. <laughs> and it's not yeah. even his staff. They come with the house. <laughs> it's like somebody's got to <laughs> clean this thing. <laughs> I remember the staff from the apartment in New York. I don't really mm. remember seeing staff come in when he lived there. There's Mr. Tuttle and then there's table okay. wiping lady. And then yeah, mm-hmm. who we we hear about. So it's it's alluded to. And she also uh what's why am I forgetting her name? The uh the the woman who helps get him the house. Claire. Claire. Claire, thank you. Yes. She mentions Mr. Tuttle and the uh, the woman whose name I'm forgetting as well before he signs on to the house. And it's just like there's mm-hmm. a housekeeper and a groundskeeper mm-hmm. and so it's basically the Torrances only, yeah. you know, with yeah. less addiction and, 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 you know, mental illness, mm. presumably. Yeah. <laughs> that we see. Exactly. That's the spinoff movie. <laughs> it is gorgeous. Like going around that mm-hmm. home. It is absolutely, it is a character in and of itself. And I think that's really important mm-hmm. with haunted house movies is mm-hmm. that the, yeah. you know, the inverse of that is like what paranormal activity did so well was it's just like no it's this typical house one of many that looks the same in a subdivision which made for a new kind of scare Mm -hmm. um but Mm -hmm. typically with a haunted house movie that home needs to feel like a character and i think that that Mm -hmm. just like the 
the dark wood paneling, those real hardwood floors, the built-in, the built-in bookcases. Like I mm-hmm. want a home with built-in bookcases and then it'll just be filled with like Christopher Pike. It'll be just the worst <laughs> literature, like the anti-literature, like no classics, just like uh-huh. young adult <laughs> novels and stuff like All that. All paperbacks. Yeah. It'll be Reader's Digest, like just like that'll be <laughs> Mad <it>. Magazine. <laughs> so it'll be amazing. The house being as magnificent and austere as it is also kind of serves it as, as that's why I'm like sitting here going, oh, my God, I keep having these brief moments of like, ah, shit, that's what that means. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's the house being this beautiful, grand, austere property that is majestic and needs managing and everything is this fa- is, a, is a facade for the ugly reality that is hiding mm. the fragility and you know the the dark underbelly of a family Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's like it's this it's the pretty face you put forward to the rest of the world in order to pretend that nothing else is on is going on and nothing else is wrong and that's why it has to burn down at the end yeah yep it's like this is is a (laughs) lie left are those Mm -hmm. exposed secrets yeah and the music yeah music box yeah, which you know, which is another thing that's really interesting, like the fact that like music is the way he kind of first makes contact, you know, and he plays the note the on key. the piano. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like this is a way I can communicate. And I think like as a former music teacher, I think music is a way that we can communicate. And I love that. I feel like it's a subtle kind of nod to that. I also love, love the scene in the classroom where he's playing and he's playing his piece and then it cuts to the symphony. I just think that mm-hmm. is so cool as a <laughs> Classical music lover. I just love it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say the locations in this movie, I think really also help elevate it because you, you have the house and that's kind of like the beating heart of the movie, but you have, you get to see the symphony. You get mm-hmm. to see the weird rooftop garden where the <laughs> historical society is. You get to, there's so many, and like just him walking on the, they, sh- they shot it actually in New York and actually in Seattle and actually in this property in, in, uh, uh, British Columbia and so you just get this real sense of almost like world building from this mm-hmm. movie that makes everything that happens feel more real and grounded in reality yeah. so when stuff does start to go wackadoodle it's like extra scary to me and I think a lot of movies from like the 70s and 80s you know they really like had the budgets to be mm-hmm. like oh this is a uh, a movie intended for adults and we're going to have locations and we're going to have lots of characters and extras and it really makes you feel like this is a fully realized world where these events are happening that's just like a little thing I noticed where I'm like a lot of movies like this now are like limited to like two or three locations you have the house maybe you have you know, an office scene where they they manage to get for a day or some other kind of, but, you know, you just don't get the full world experience that you get in this movie, and yeah. it just makes it more enjoyable to me. Yeah. We can definitely have a whole show about how, like, the, so it's like, I think, six or seven million for the budget. So you could you could have a whole discussion of how, like, nowadays, like, that 20 to $25 million movie that is made for, like, 30 and over is dried up and gone away because you're taking instead of making four of those you're making one superhero movie or one young adult adaptation and i think we're poorer for it i do think that we are it's lesser for it that we're actually we're missing something by not having this kind of movie be as readily available and you still see like some independent movies do it but they tend to get lost in the shuffle of streaming you're Mm -hmm. not getting like even not three necessarily three thousand but you're not getting like 500 or a thousand screens where it's relatively easy to access 
something like this. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting that you bring that up because the, it really is as as much as I really hate even to acknowledge it because I have such a you know romanticized idea of, of the film industry as I think many of us do. It it, it is a business. It's 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 mm-hmm. a business industry for sure, and it ultimately comes down to what people want and what they are willing to put their money into that studios will wind up producing and it's interesting to me that when we consider for example like the golden era of hollywood you know after world war ii or like near the end of world war ii and beyond when we saw like all the you know the biggest astaire and rogers pictures and that kind of escapism was all anybody wanted to see Mm -hmm. and there were those like more nuanced small budget movies that kind of fell by the wayside and kind of retro- retroactively get you know the, they're just desserts but it's usually reflective of i find the trauma of the time mm-hmm. or kind of the difficulty like that desire towards and that pull towards escapism towards you know a 20th fast and the furious movie etc 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 all the marvel movies etc when you consider what North America, even just alone, let alone the impact that it has had since like 9-11, for example, Mm -hmm. the ongoing trauma and upheaval and everything where before you could actually look at the birth of escapism and everything from after World War One and World War Two in cinema, it's it's untraceable now. It's kind of just become um, the baseline Mm -hmm. because there is such a constant barrage of just stuff something going wrong and it's only getting more and more urgent and more and more constant as -hmm. the years go on that that's all people seem to want to put their money towards and i Mm -hmm. i have i have such a hard i I agree with you in, in as much as thinking that like we're poorer for not being able to pay attention to more of the smaller budget movies or even willing to put the money into like to have studios want to put the money into that. And I think that is going to change because of the impact of the pandemic. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not even that we won't, we don't even have an opportunity to see yeah. them anymore because they're just not being made. Yeah. And the ones that are being made are a lot of the time there's, they're small enough budget that they can't afford the marketing team right. in order to do what they need to do. Or if they do, they get lucky. And mm-hmm. if you know, like with any of Ari Aster's films, like for example, like those are great mm-hmm. examples of kind of the the smaller budgeted, but those weren't even that small budget, but relative to today, they would mm-hmm. qualify, not micro budget, but still, anyways, I'm going off on a tangent on that one, <laughs> but um, like I'm, I, I can't fault people for wanting an escape much mm-hmm. in the same way that I couldn't fault weird how that came back i couldn't fault george c scott for wanting an escape by leaving new york mm-hmm. like <laughs> mm-hmm. right we need those things right we need something that helps us cope and some of us deal mm-hmm. better with staring headlong into the fire mm-hmm. so to speak yeah mm-hmm. and i do think i mean it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about horror's ability to sort of trojan horse in a lot of these things i think it's mm-hmm. no coincidence yeah. that the movies that are getting 
made successfully tend to be like genre films, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. that, that are, that, you know, the only place where these kind of stories are being told, maybe not the only, but like 95% are horror, mm-hmm. you know, and you have people like Ari Aster or studios like A24. I just saw The Green Knight, which was fantastic. And it's like, it's a fucking weird ass, trippy ass movie, but like there, there's only so many movies where they're willing to be a little experimental or throw a bone to to more independent filmmakers and they're and it's almost all genre film mm-hmm. and because i think that it's more digestible a lot of these bigger more you know uh heatier heavier you know subject matters are just more digestible in a horror or genre package and so mm-hmm. i mean that makes me excited as someone who at one point in her life wanted to be a filmmaker you know like oh maybe i can still get away with it if they you know if i just dress it up the right way you know and if you market it a certain way and i think that's what ari Esther, you know when you go to, when you we all went to see hereditary for the first time we're like it was marketed to be like creepy kid like oh mm-hmm. it's gonna scare the shit out of you and then it was like oh my god this is sad like so i love that <laughs> Right. It was so sadistic and I just loved it. Like mm-hmm. I loved being in the theater and feeling everyone just collectively become miserable, you know, at that one point, <laughs> um, you know, but, but then again, that that's just me being a little piece of shit, you know? Yeah. Oh it, but, yeah. No, it's you know, empathy. I'm a little hee hee hee. Anyway, but I, I don't know. I just think it's, I think it's, I just, my point is that, yeah, we can only get away with it if you dress it up a certain way and pretend it's something else, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. Well, is there anything else we want to talk about with the changeling or shall we move on to our uplifting moment? And now it's time for an uplifting <laughs> moment. This is where we share any grounding or coping techniques and any self-care that have been particularly effective for us. Grounding and coping techniques are the little tips, tricks, mantras, or practices that help us get through tough days and tough moments. And self-care is anything that makes us feel good or feel better. And um, I have shared a little bit about this, but I just recently started taking some new medication. Um, And I was having a lot of really intrusive thoughts that were very dark and kind of not, I wouldn't necessarily call them scary for me, but they were concerning. And so I had been on, had a bad experience with some, I think, carelessly prescribed medicine about 10 years ago. And I was like, nope, not doing that again. Um, And so I set up partly because, um, and I hope this is okay to say, but partly because Ariel, you were so open about talking about you taking medication like it really it was like oh okay this is something that I can do this is it's okay so I went I got an appointment and I started taking some medicine again and it has gone really really well I started taking two because I thought it was going to be like antidepressants I thought I was going to be taking them for like just being sad or anxiety or PTSD Um, but she like for an hour and a half, she talked to me about what was happening, what was going on with my life, what is my life like? Like at one point she was like, is there anything else just about you that makes you you that I want to know? And so she prescribed stuff. And like one of the things she prescribed is used to treat OCD. And another thing was to treat compulsive thoughts. And it it's worked really well because she listened to me, to what I actually needed and she gave me a plan. And then she also said, okay, well, and if this doesn't work, we're going to we'll figure it out, you know, and it's been working so well that my therapist the other day was like, well, maybe you do have OCD because this is working really well for you, which I mean, if you're going to find out you have a diagnosis, like 
the fact that there's a solution first may be the best way to find out about it. But I have just been really, really grateful. It's still, I feel, still feel a little jittery in the morning. Like I'm not totally adjusted yet. Sometimes it makes me feel occasionally nauseous, but like, I feel like the clutter is gone. My mental clutter is gone. Like I'm not constantly like consumed with this thought that like what you were talking about, Mike, like when I don't have my phone next to me, I'm not constantly thinking they hate me. They hate me. They hate me. You know, it's like, that's gone mostly, you know? And so I just, you know, if anybody is, if this is something that anyone is considering, I just want to say like, it is, um, it's not a decision I think to take lightly, but I mean, I have, I was very scared to start and I, was very grateful, Ariel, for you sharing about your journey through this because it made me feel like it was something that I could do too, and it's going well. So I just wanted to say that. I hope I don't, I hope I didn't make you feel uncomfortable. But no, not at all. Quite the opposite. I'm actually <laughs> deeply touched. That's Aww. really. I'm. I'm also incredibly happy for you. I think Aww. that's that's absolutely unbelievable. If I if I if I hadn't already cried earlier today because of finding out about a uh about uh ed asner i'd probably be crying right now honestly <laughs> but i'm that person i cry at the drop of a hat i'm, oh, I'm, I'm that bitch i'm that bitch. yeah i kind of <laughs> like it too you know like i, I don't mind a good cry every once in a while neither do i I'm the, yeah. I'm the person who will also actually speaking of grounding exercises and things that we do if i'm ever having like a really difficult time with emotions or thoughts or things that i can't quite pin down like if i'm particularly angry or I'm my my depression is is acting up or my anxiety is acting up or there's been a loss and I can't quite you know it it's just emotional excess without Mm -hmm. like really heightened emotional reactions without being able to channel them or direct them Mm -hmm. one thing that I've always done and that I still do that I love to do is to deliberately put on a movie that is going to make me cry Mm -hmm. and it depends Mm -hmm. on the different movie for the different situation like for example for whatever reason when we had to put down my cat who was 18 several Mm -hmm. years ago I immediately came home and watched Fiddler on the Roof Mm. and I don't know why it had to be Fiddler on the Roof but I was like no I need to watch Fiddler on the Roof and I need to watch it now and Sunrise Mm -hmm. Sunset comes on and I'm just weeping like a baby and I'm like okay I feel better Mm -hmm. this is okay and it's kind of the same way that like my husband describes listening to metal is that it's like it's a good way to channel certain thoughts and feelings and emotions because it is so much in and of itself Mm -hmm. but I like I'm so ridiculously happy for you. I can't even like, like, well done. That is, that's hard to do. And like, as someone who is now medicated, like I never tried SSRIs. Is it, is it okay that I'm going kind of on a tangent again? I'm no, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Please. <laughs> yeah, no, that's go for what it. this is for. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, awesome. Something I'm good at that I can finally <laughs> capitalize on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love that. <laughs> I like I'm 33 years old. I have been dealing with some form of severe anxiety and depression and PTSD since I was 16 since my my boy my ex-boyfriend killed himself. And um so he had one of the big contributing factors to him eventually committing suicide was that he frequently stopped taking his antidepressants he had dealt Mm. with clinical depression for most of his young adult life Mm. he was 17 when he when he did it um and that was fully 
uh, endogenous. So it was completely inherited genetically. His father was had uh, he had depression and had dealt with it his entire life, and it was purely, you know, biological. So, and Kevin had a really hard time rec- reconciling that knowledge of that he has these feelings and he was always a very active person, a very fit person. He used to run a lot. He played hockey. Uh, He played basketball. So not being able to do certain things to fix the problem. He also Mm. really liked actively fixing things. And this was something he couldn't fix. And the medication never seemed to kick in because he never gave it enough time. So he would just be like, this isn't helping. And he'd stop taking it after like three, four weeks before Mm -hmm. it had a chance to fully kick in. And then he'd start taking it again and then stop taking it again and da 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 usually without consulting his psych- his therapist. And all of this I learned after he was gone. I learned this all after the fact. And what I wound up learning through going through therapy myself was that the stopping and starting actually sinks you lower than you were. It makes mm. things worse than they were when you started. So that's a lethal combination. And mm-hmm. it's no wonder. So knowing all of this... I was terrified of SSRIs because I was like, Mm. I don't want something to have that kind of control over me. I don't want something to be able to determine how I am on a given day and rob me of the power I already feel like I'm losing Mm. to be able Mm -hmm. to control how I'm feeling and everything. So I did everything under the sun. I have done cognitive behavioral therapy. I've done talk therapy. I've done relational psychotherapy. I've done like a million different little things over the years. I've seen several different psychiatrists who just, you know, either I moved or somebody was good for me for like a few sessions and then that was it. Or Mm -hmm. I stayed with them for, I, you know, did one thing with them and it was great. And then I came back to them a couple years later and we were no longer the right fit for each other because that happens. Mm -hmm. It's like any relationship. You have to trust them and you have to feel comfortable. And then February happened (laughs) this year. Mm -hmm. And I, it my it was like my brain just was like, fuck you. You've put me through the ringer. I'm done. <laughs> mm-hmm. You need medication because I can't keep working with you on everything but medication now. Mm-hmm. And yes. I was fucking terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And I had the I, I went on fluoxetine, which is the uh, like the off name for Prozac. Essentially, it's the generic uh, name for Prozac which I'm still on, which is working wonderfully for me. But it was a nightmare adjusting to it, which made Mm -hmm. me doubt whether or not I was making the right decision that entire time as well. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was such a long, painful process. It felt like it was never going to end. And like Mm -hmm. there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And that's how it feels a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. It was like my body just finally stopped and was like, no, your brain's not going to function anymore unless you do something. Mm-hmm. And it was also the undiagnosed ADHD, which now that I'm, you know, I'm using Adderall for it. And it's, it's like, oh my God, my mind can be quiet. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize my mind was loud mm-hmm. until it shut the fuck up. And then yeah. it was like, oh, that was the nice. thing. When she was talking about OCD, she was like, there's something in your brain that's not telling you to stop doing this. And yeah. I, it's like you start reevaluating like everything you've ever done. And I was like, oh. Oh, maybe that's why. Oh, maybe that's yep. why, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which years ago I read a book about like childhood trauma and it like freaked me out. Like I was not ready for that reevaluation, you know? And this time it's been like really empowering because I feel like I have a solution, you know? Like or at least something. Yeah. And it's so important to be ready for it. That's the thing mm-hmm. is that I fought it most of my life because I was never ready for it. 
I was ready for a, a million other things and I wanted to try them all. And I did, and I did the work and I, you know, I, I did the cognitive, the, CBT was the best thing I ever did though, for sure. Like, really? oh yeah, the most impactful uh, until medication. But I got to a point where I needed the medication mm-hmm. and also re- like letting go of the shame of it. Mm-hmm. Totally. Because mm-hmm. that's a big factor. And I was always, I, I, I even fought going back to therapy a, a number of times over the years, yeah. over the last 18 years that it was like, well, no, I did this once. I should be good enough now. Mm-hmm. I should know. I should have the skills. Yeah. I should know what to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's not how it works and there's also no shame in going back to therapy or finding a new therapist or like I still have my therapist who I see from Toronto but at the same time I had to see a a psychiatrist locally here in Ann Arbor in order to get treated for this very present urgent problem like Mm -hmm. I was barely functional John had Mm -hmm. to take my husband had to take care of me for months because the smallest tasks were impossible. Mm-hmm. It just got to that point. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, medication, like big, thum- big thumbs up. Like yeah. there are a million things to try, but like mm-hmm. there is, there should be no shame or stigma around needing medication because it's not like you're weak and you need a crutch. Yeah. It's you have these really interesting superpowers that are overpowering you. And mm. these will help you rein them in. This the pills are kind of like Doctor Doctor Xavier, and he's <laughs> coming in and he's showing you how to wield your powers, and then you are unstoppable. Oh and my it's God, amazing. I love that. <laughs> like, I like that needs to be a children's book, like it really something does. to help like teens understand like why medication is okay. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it. it astounds me. It's one of those things that astounds me because you know I'm not a prescriber, but I strongly recommend persons at least talk to a prescriber and get like the best information available for them and the amount of conversations that I've had to have with patients where I'm like look if your doctor went to you and said if you don't take this pill your heart will explode in your chest and you will Mm -hmm. die you would not say yeah you know what I'm just gonna roll the dice in this one Mm -hmm. the yep collective disagreements or the collective uh, the way we look at mental health versus physical health and how we don't see how those two things are like how they're linked to one another it it's astounding to me mm-hmm. working with someone who went on Adderall for the first time and how much better they are doing when they're on it and they talked about how about how they used it non-prescribed before and like yeah every time i just took it it felt great and i'm wondering (laughs) why i didn't i'm like and they were really hesitant because they were like well is am i using it as a crutch should i not just be able to do this and we had a long talk about it and i'm like i want you to your homework this week is you're going to go talk to the person you're going to go talk to your psychiatrist then you're going to make an informed decision then they went on it and they were beating themselves up for waiting so long. Mm-hmm. So then the cognitive therapy that where I come in is like, I want you to look at it a different way. You saw you had a problem. You looked at all your options and you made a choice for yourself saying the best possible thing for me right now is to do this. And you did all that on your own. No one else did it for you. You made the call. You made the choice. You should be proud of yourself for doing that. And that's where I come in. Yeah. You know, it's well sometimes you need to walk on crutches. You know, like if your leg is broken, you need crutches to walk. That's and okay. that was the 
that was the big thing even in February and, and throughout the last few months was there were periods where, because some of the biggest side effects I dealt with were nausea and increased panic attacks, which is mm. a really ironic side effect uh-huh. of SSRIs, particularly mm-hmm. when treating anxiety, but like it happens. Mm. And I have, I have uh, uh, Ativan on hand now all the time, just in case, and it almost never mm. happens. And yeah. I have Zofran on hand all the time now because I did that, uh, uh, that gen- there's a genetic test that you can do to test how different receptors in your brain engage with different medications so that you can figure out mm. like what has a lot of aver- a- adverse reactions. What can you take as directed? And it's specifically related to side effects. So it's not like these drugs will all work for you 100%. Mm-hmm. It's just you won't have the side effects. So knowing now my brain processes uh, serotonin in a weird way that actually causes nausea. So the fact that I was on SSRIs and my body was still adjusting to them fully explained the chronic nausea. It's it's super cool, but that's like a nerdy extra thing mm-hmm. to discuss at a, at a different time. That's not. Yeah, I'm super interested. I'm yeah. like, I want to know all about this. Tell me all the details. <laughs> legitimately, like off. Tell email me. <laughs> I can do that. The name I'm of curious. it, and it just I just remembered again. The name of it is Gene Sight, and they do do a compassionate payment plan. So if you are oh. in certain payment brackets, you can. Uh, d- like I wound up getting it free of charge because John hasn't had a job for a while and I was the only one, uh, like my income was sustaining us and it wasn't a lot. Mm-hmm. So like you can do this for free and then that's genetic based. So like that information stays with you forever. Mm-hmm. Like it never changes, which is amazing. But yeah, I was, I, I was having all of these horrible side effects and I had started losing a lot of weight because I was having so much nausea and just mm-hmm. not eating. Mm-hmm. And I looked sick and I I remember one day I looked at myself in the mirror in the bathroom and my cheeks just looked sallow and like sunken and my skin just looked gray and I just I came out of the bathroom and I just started sobbing in John's arms and I was like I look like a sick person I I hate and this was like 2 months into the process mm-hmm. and he was like honey I hate to like you are sick right now and that's okay Mm-hmm. Like this isn't you. You don't need to be okay right now. Mm-hmm. You're you're still doing the work. It's still a part of the process. But like, if you had a broken leg, you wouldn't question not feeling okay. Mm-hmm. If you had cancer and you were going through chemotherapy, you wouldn't question how sick you looked or felt. You'd know why. This isn't any different. It's just invisible, and we beat ourselves up about that all the fucking time. And particularly with ADHD and having like heightened emotional responses and re- tons of rejection sensitivity and, you know, all of that. It just, you beat yourself up so much. And it's so hard to remember not like that that's not necessary or, or real. Mm-hmm. Like it's not worth doing. So it's like doing cognitive behavioral therapy, even just as a, as a, mm-hmm. Like the idea that medication can solve everything is also a fallacy because it can't. And therapy on its own sometimes can't. And both of those things are okay. So like if you've been doing therapy for years and it's not doing enough anymore, that's okay. There might be another option. If you've been on medication and you've never addressed the other stuff that's going on in your head because you thought therapy was the wrong fit, it might be a good time to try that out because you might actually find the solutions. 
Yeah. Like I kept feeling all of these weird humming kind of sensations even before I started the Adderall. And I was like, the Prozac's not the right dose. It's, it's, we've got to, we've got to up the dose. And we did a little too quickly and I got akathisia and it was a miserable couple of months. And then my doctor was like, I think we just need to treat the ADHD because I'm convinced that this hum that you're feeling, this constant buzzing, this anxiety is just the ADHD being untreated. And Mm. I was panicky and like starting another medication. I don't know if this is going to go badly. And it was like it just flipped a switch and turned it off Mm. like that. Like within Mm. 30 minutes, it was just gone. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Worked quick and Mm. was completely groundbreaking yeah but i I, i've gone on a huge digression sorry thank you no it's such a valuable conversation it really is yeah because it's just like and you yeah i because i i was beating myself up about it too i was like i've done this before it didn't work and it's i think part of it is like kind of what you're saying is like you talk to a doctor about it and you go and you, it's a process. It's not, here's your pill. And all of a sudden you're good. And the th- like I'm doing brain spotting therapy right now. And it actually worked better the last time I went because it, the medication had cleared out a bunch of the stuff that was keeping me mm-hmm. from really like committing to this. And I think the bad experience that I had a long time ago was because I just showed up and it was like the week my first husband had left. And I was like, I'm sad. He just handed me some stuff that he was a primary care physician. I'm sure he meant well, but he just handed it to me. And I was like, okay, here we go. And it just was re- a really, really bad fit. But I was on it for like a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, and I realized how negatively it had been affecting me. And I was like, I've got to get this out of my body. And I kind of like panicked at that moment. But this this experience has been completely different because I think I talked to my therapist about it. She recommended someone she knew who would like really, like I said, it was an hour and a half of us just talking through this and me asking questions. And because I was really afraid I was going to gain a lot of weight too, because that was mm-hmm. a big side effect that I had before. And that hasn't really been the case um, so far, but yeah, it's just, it's not the kind of thing to just go and get, you know, it's really, yeah. you need to check in with yourself. And she's like, well, now you're a data scientist. And I want you to really think all day about how you're feeling and like what level you're feeling better or worse. And so that's been really fascinating too. But, and you know, I mean, I'm still, I I've, I'm on my second day of taking a full dose. So it could be that you. I, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm like crossing my fingers that this good that this working continues but I mean you know I but I also know that if it doesn't I have somebody I can talk to about it and we can figure out what we do next so so I appreciate you sharing all of that and here and you know other places it really means a lot (laughs) yeah (laughs) because it really helps you know no it's good to be open about it I think you know Mm -hmm. that's doing the work yeah ending the stigma you know is all we can do is talk about it yeah it's literally yeah. it, and it's an, it's an amazing thing to talk about. So yeah. thank you for sharing. In in connect in connection, because it's occurring to me, I'm like, there's a big part of this puzzle that I'm leaving out. the The issue of access is a big. Oh problem. yes. Oh well, yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> that's cool. yeah, it's a big problem. Because like mm-hmm. I'm talking about, oh, I went on these medications and I got to see you know this psychiatrist, and like that's great, Ariel, but you have a support system that allows you to do that, and not a uh-huh. lot of people do, which yeah. is also one of the reasons why I'm so. Like now anyone that I know who is either looking to start medication or who works with people who are going on medication, I'm immediately like, gene sight, do this. 
because mm. immediately you rule out anything that's going to have adverse side effects and mm. mm-hmm. you can then only look at the drugs that will interact with your body properly because mm-hmm. then it's like okay here you have a a shortened list of options that you can potentially get for free and then the expense of having to test out endless amounts of medications mm-hmm. that yep. are expensive or could be expensive only for weeks on end to find out that it is the wrong medication for you like mm-hmm. that's wasted money that a lot of people don't have and it mm-hmm. negle- it, it negates the entire point of the process, particularly for people with limited resources. Mm-hmm. So that's massive. Yeah. I'm going to link Jean's site also. Yeah. I mean, I talk about all of the therapy that I go to and I just happen to be very fortunate that I, that is something that I, that is available to me. I was on, I went to a therapist before. I think you mentioned a compassionate payment plan that Jean's site has. Like mm-hmm. lots of times therapists will have sliding scales for payment and you know that is something that it is also I think there's probably stigma attached to asking for that but those those things yes, are available is. yeah yeah well and, and there's and just to, just to say it out loud there shouldn't you shouldn't feel ashamed of asking because the especially in America at least yeah. you know the system we have set up for insurance in general and for the health for healthcare in general is fucked uh-huh. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. that you know uh, there should be much more equitable and affordable access to these things and there isn't and that isn't a right. you problem that's a system problem yes mm-hmm. and i know occasionally we've shared on our on our channels you know different cheap or affordable resources i think that's just something i would like to personally commit to doing is finding more and more of those and sharing them whenever i can mm-hmm. because People need them, and you know there there are there are resources out there, and you know we'll we'll at least do our best in our little corner of the internet to share what we can. So, yeah, and even knowing it's available, I think that's the other thing is that the resources mm-hmm. that are available to help people are sometimes tucked away. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, or there's a language barrier, or there's yeah. a you know technological barrier. It just should not be as hard as it is to take no. care of yourself. Yeah, you know, yeah. I do actually have, I keep thinking about the fact that this was supposed to just be like, what are some of your grounding exercises? <laughs> oh, no. Like, I did have a, there's a, there's a couple, if you guys have the room, there's a couple of actual small things that I swear to fucking Christ, they would be small and condensed that <laughs> I can mention. <laughs> oh yeah, go for it. Uh-huh. No, it's actually something that Lindsay taught me. I was having a really severe anxiety attack earlier in 2020 and I called her because I was I didn't know what to do. And she told me to uh, count my appendages. She's like, count your fingers, touch them, count, you know, one thumb, two, three, four, five, grab and touch each of your, you know, one hand, two Mm -hmm. hands, one wrist, two wrists, one head, two ears, like count them, because then you're coming back into your body and becoming more present. So it mm. quite literally is a grounding exercise that just pulls you back into the moment. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I've seen some people use, but I've never tried is actually taking like a small teaspoonful of a hot sauce that'll like throw you back into your body and like, oh, yeah. d- like just physical stimuli. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard of holding an ice cube in your hand too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've always run my, my wrists under cold water because mm. that also kind of just, it's soothing on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And otherwise, like, I, I know it's it's the type of thing that like when when someone's like, oh, I deal with depression. They're like, oh, you should exercise more. And it's like, get fucked. 
Like, uh-huh. don't, don't, <laughs> don't like, talk to me about that. Mm-hmm. But, but in all seriousness, at least in some situations and specifically with ADHD, and this is something I don't think a lot of people realize, exercise actually makes a difference between whether or not you can even sleep sometimes, let alone yeah. anything else. Mm-hmm. So like getting enough exercise in a day, as much as it does sometimes sound like, you know, oh, you just don't understand. Mm-hmm. It, it can actually make a massive difference. When you, when you have ADHD, mm-hmm. you basically have pent up energy that has nowhere to go. If you don't mm-hmm. exercise enough, it just stays in your body bouncing around like boiling water molecule, molecules that can't evaporate. Mm. And that just wakes you up. It causes panic attacks. It causes a lack of focus. It makes everything worse. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for people with anxiety disorders and things like that. So mm-hmm. exercise. I told you it would be short. (laughs) (laughs) No, and I mean, just to that point, I think it's one of many tools in the tool belt, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's not like just like just therapy or just medication, but yeah, it's just all these things taken together are the 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 things you um, you know have to apply to to uh, to the Mm -hmm. to the wound of your of your psyche. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there anything else we want to share? I'm good for this. I'm week. good. I okay. feel like this is just such yeah. a valuable conversation. So I think I'm, so I'm too. I'm really, really grateful for you sharing, Ariel. I um, hope I didn't monopolize too much of the time. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. This is great. Absolutely. But part of the attraction to having you on the show was because you've been so open with everything. Like it's a way our listeners learn a lot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we want to hear from you. Um, is your house haunted? Have you ever convinced a nice lady to let you dig up her living room? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. We didn't we even didn't. touch on I that. I know. That poor woman. That poor lady. They're going through the house with a sawzall. Like, I know. Like, oh, this is, you know, and they're just like, like chilling. For like houseplants, you know? The senator <laughs> needs to pay for that. That's all I I'll think say. so, too. Yeah, there's one yes. thing he can do. Pay for that lady's house. He paid with his life. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that he did. Yeah. That is not fungible enough. No. The, speaking of the senator, do you wear a dress shirt and tie under your bathroom? Or what's your grounding and self-care? And just what's up? what else is on your mind? You can answer these questions and more by following us on socials at PsychoAPod on all of the places. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group, which is a private and moderated space to share about the things we talk about in the episodes or anything else that might be on your mind. And you can email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share privately. Um, And if you have a moment to spare, please, please leave us a rate and review on Apple iTunes. It really helps other people find the pod and it makes us feel good. Um, And thank you to those who have already left us really kind reviews. It really means a lot to us. Um, And our homework question for this week, I'm really excited about um, because I want to hear, uh, tell us your local haunted house story. So, and Ariel, you said you have one. Do you want to share one? Well, it's, it's. I think it's it's a little anticlimactic based on okay. you know the changeling. But well, that's it, true. It's going to stack up to the changeling, you know. Yeah. It, well, it was actually my house. Oh um, wow! When I was a teenager, so this is a long timeline. But m- m- the first house that my mom owned on her own after my parents split when they were se- when I was seven. Good relationship. It's like the only thing that ever comes up in therapy. Is like, oh no, that's not a problem. I'm fine. Um, <laughs> but like. Um, it was this house in Richmond Hill, Ontario, across the street from a mall called Hillcrest Mall. And it was near this old observatory. It wasn't even that close to it, but it was on a street called Observatory Lane that was that it was connected to. And it was just this new townhouse complex. And 
it always creeped me out. Mm -hmm. There was something wrong. Like weird shit would happen if I was home alone. I like I'd hear noises that sounded like someone was home and no one else was there. Or it was like just my brother and I and we were Mm -hmm. in the same room Mm -hmm. and like lights would turn on and off upstairs. And and I, I felt this for years and it also felt like like someone was watching me and like I wasn't alone. It was it was never anything like slamming doors or like things moved or like I felt things touch me or something like like hands grabbing me or something like that. It wasn't it wasn't as like cinematic as all that. Mm-hmm. But I it was really strange and my mom never noticed it, but one one time I I like years later I started talking about it with my brother and he was like, "Oh yeah, no, there was something in that house." And he felt it too and we just never talked about it. Ugh. And I think I mentioned it to my mom and she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything is normal. I always feel fine in this house. And so I was like, oh, maybe Derek doesn't feel it. I shouldn't tell him about that. Mm. And then lo and behold, yeah. So it wasn't just me. And it was very, very strange. <laughs> I have no explanation for it. I never explored it any further beyond there. The whole place was a vacant lot for years before it got turned into a housing complex. Ooh. Maybe it was built on, you know, an ancient burial ground or something. Yeah, but you didn't remove the body. <laughs> yeah, that might be one of those situations where I might not want to know exactly. You know, yeah. like I don't know. You know, no, I've I've seen that movie. I'm not asking those questions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's one thing when it's on screen; it's another when it is your own house. But um, we want to hear your story, so check out. Um, I usually post those prompts on Saturdays, so look out for them. Um, and so what are we watching next? Well, we are continuing our theme of objectification for this month. And our last episode, we talked about how we see it in Assassination Nation. And next week, we are going to approach it kind of from the other side of the dial. And we're going to watch the original Maniac, which I am very excited about. I have not so seen it fun. yet. So I'm very excited to talk about this. Fun. <laughs> very excited a little bit nervous to watch it but um so i might have to live text you guys as i'm watching it um tom savini blows up his own head it's brilliant what uh, what? oh yeah okay all right now i'm (laughs) i don't know how to feel about knowing that about this movie but i I still can't wait to watch it all right so let's wrap up with some plugs um ariel thank you so much for joining us where can we find you online and what is coming up next for you at slash film and fangoria you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AFIS8, A-F-I-S-8. Uh, you can also find me on TikTok at AFIS8, because somebody else took AFIS8, and I couldn't do it. Uh, um, but, <laughs> so those are my socials. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, you there's constantly stuff coming up at Slash Film. So if you don't you know, read the site, I highly recommend you going and and taking a look. We just got a new huge revamp and the site looks great so mm-hmm. have a peruse see some of our old stuff i do have I, I actually have a column now that i share with matt donato called scariest scene ever um which is inherited from the amazing uh megan navarro so it, it took two people to fill her shoes <laughs> so, <laughs> well and not to spoil but those two people you just mentioned are both going to be cu- guests coming up in the future which are very yay, yay. fun <laughs> so like yeah go read that it's it's every thursday or friday depending on the busyness of mine and matt's (laughs) respective schedules but uh we we post that every week this past week was on the ring and it was my turn to lead the discussion so that was fun 
Oh, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. I'm really, I'm Super go scary, that. though. Movie. It was fun. Oh, yeah. No, it scares the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. More fear. What more well horror than Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wells on wells on wells. Yeah. Wells on wells. <laughs> and otherwise, uh, for Fangoria, if the, the deadline is fast approaching to subscribe in order to get the Halloween issue in your mailbox, so go to Fangoria.com. And through the shop, you can... Find the subscription plan that works the best for you. Uh, and on top of that, they still currently have a 25% off sale. So Ooh. highly recommend. Awesome. I say they as if it's not. I should say we. Right. I don't we, know why yeah. I do that. <laughs> it's still new. Right. <laughs> as a subscriber to Fangoria, the issues are just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Like they are just these thick set. I mean, it's like they're art. They're just pieces of art. They just look incredible. Mm-hmm. Like I could put the first issue of the relaunch online and pay off my last credit card but i can't part with it i keep like being tempted and i'm like i just can't part with it yeah so where you can find me so over on twitter at mike underscore sununian is the best place if you want to kind of interact with me you can hear my other show the pod and the pendulum which i co-host with Lindsay travis uh, we just actually had meg navarro on to talk the conjuring three uh, where i got ganged up on because i don't love that movie oh, uh, no I, you're, you're in good company now yeah it's not, it's, it's not no but i i loved their conversation about it and i got to kind of hang back and let them take over but we're going to be doing like Lindsay's taking a week off because of festival season mm-hmm. and i'm bringing in uh gina radcliffe and jessica scott to talk about my all-time favorite movie american werewolf in london I don't even think I'm going to need guests. I'm like, I kind of like want to preemptively mm. apologize because I'm going to just go off on that movie. But you can find me there. Um, and here, you know, I'll just throw in our quick reminder. If you want more of us, go to our Patreon page where we go to patreon.com slash psychoanalysis podcast. We have a ton up for August. Mm-hmm. We have our Q&A. We have our uh, staff recommendations. By the time this is up, like I'll be uh, the Citadel kind of little treatment plan I did for agoraphobia is up. And also the very laid back (laughs) fan commentary on Fear Street 78 we did, which I think we talk about the movie for about three minutes. (laughs) But it is a very fun all over the place kind of like you don't have to watch the movie (laughs) while this is on. (laughs) You can just use it as a marker for like the length of the episode. Yes. (laughs) It was really so, fun. It was fun. We got all slap happy there. Yeah. <laughs> so patreon.com psychoanalysis podcast. Yeah, like we have something for everyone over there. <laughs> Laura, where can we find you? Oh boy. Well, where can you find me? That is the question. <laughs> I'm definitely vamping so that I don't have to do my my weekly joke about my username. Um, you can find me. <laughs> On Twitter at Underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, much like the sort of turn of the century orphan onesie that you're wearing in the orphanage when they come and find you and say, our son isn't dead, you're our son, come (laughs) live with us little boy. They're not British, I don't know why. (laughs) I mean, they might be British. (laughs) U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S that's where you can find me on Twitter yeah and I'm occasionally on the Losers Club and Halloweenies podcasts as well come find me in those locations that's all I got dear God make it stop oh okay. <laughs>
<laughs> this is me slowly backing out on the pony. Oh. <laughs> into the bush. trotting backwards okay oh <laughs> that's me bye <laughs> and you can find me at jim Ferratu on all of the social places you can find me um co-hosting the losers club podcast and we are doing lots of fun stuff in september including we're going to do an archive series on king's garbage truck which is the column that he wrote in college which i'm really excited about so oh boy excited like entertainment weekly column. That is <laughs> digging deep. it is yeah it's so we started a new series called the archives cut. where it's like we go back in and we look at like we just we did one that was his the first story that he ever published um and then like a story he wrote when he was like eight so it's it's been really i was gonna say do you have like his elementary school but you actually do, we do. Like, yeah actually- it's available it is yeah we've got a patron who has like this giant trove of like rare king stuff so he shared it with us um so yeah that's locks of his hair <laughs> i mean if i could get my head sorry don't be creepy jen not not now no. <laughs> um yeah so you can find me there uh not being weird at all about stephen king um and you can find me um i also just guested on the halloweenies podcast to talk about scream three and the white ladies in crisis podcast we just talked about wild things which was very fun to revisit way more fun than i was expecting so check that out that's on the anatomy of a scream pod squad um with joe lisbeth and gina radcliffe and yeah that's me and that's our episode episode on the changeling ariel this was so much fun it was not only fun but it was a fantastic conversation and i just am so glad that you joined us thank you so much thank you for having me really and thank you for letting me ramble on and actually telling me that it's useful and helpful that's really good for my ego sort of kind of maybe (laughs) oh no it's amazing and please come back anytime true she says as she shrinks in her chair (laughs) feeling you know oh that's what i always do too Um, Listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Please make sure to take care of yourselves and each other. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're we're all out of bubblegum. Bubblegum.